I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to The Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday, folks. We are recording this very early on April 10, um, probably because it feels like summer right now. And we just really wanted to get into that spirit with y'all. When is this going to be airing? In May. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah, we really are ahead of the game. Well, it makes us sound like we're super organized, which we are, thanks to Nia. But it's also because we're going to be out of town the next couple of weeks, right? I know. We're just like vacationing babes. And so it's really hard to maintain a podcast. So true, especially when you're a jet setter like we are. Yes. Uh, So I'll say happy birthday month to you. Thank you. Thank you. So exciting. Appreciate it. And you're going, you've already told me that you're busy the entire weekend of my birthday. That I am. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to find a weekend to clean out the pond, our annual pond clean out. It was looking like end of June, which is a little late for the koi. So Colin might get to do it solo. You can't do that. You can't do that. Guess what I did today, which is always um, exciting. I bought my front porch ferns. I know. (laughs) Tell me you're 40 without telling me you're over 40. I thought you were going to go really sarcastic with like, I got a colonoscopy, but ferns. Okay. No, ferns. I love ferns and they sell out so quickly here. It's like really weird. So I got to go early and get them. And then I just have to make sure it's like it's a commitment because I got to bring them in at night when it's going to drop below a certain temperature. And yeah, I can't imagine this is a great climate for ferns. They thrive in the summer. I had no idea. And then I rehome them. My ones from last summer now live in steamboat. What lucky ferns. (laughs) So it's for me, it's a signifier of summer. So we're getting there. Similarly, right now, every window in my home is open except for the two in my office so we can record, which means it is a million degrees. I'm sitting here in shorts and I might pass out before the end of the recording. I'm not going to like, okay, because six days ago we had five inches of snow. I thought you were going to be like, okay, I'll go on without you. We don't need you on this podcast. (laughs) Well, speaking of podcasts. That is what we're here to do. Exactly. What are we here to talk about? So as our Patreon subscribers know, we have just concluded a fantastic book club, first ever in nonprofit reframe history. And we thought those of you over here on the public feed might want to get get some nuggets of wisdom from us. Yes. So we have spent the last two months, two and a half, three years. <laughs> what it feels like reading the revolution will not be funded beyond the nonprofit industrial complex just a light read just like a quick light read (laughs) so the the book is a collection of essays that came out of this conference um where a lot of these people spoke at addressing the nonprofit industrial complex and it's it's loosely organized into three sections each with multiple essays 
of each. So the first section is the rise of the nonprofit industrial complex. Part two is nonprofits and global organizing. And then part three is rethinking nonprofits, reimagining resistance. So just big picture, Brittany, what would what, you think of the book? Well, <laughs> it was really fucking depressing. <laughs> Super depressing. It started off like very heady. That first essay was brutal. I was like, what the hell did we sign up for? I am not nearly smart enough to get through this. But we trudged through it and they did get easier to read in the sense of like just comprehension. Yeah, like vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, at the end of the day, it's really talking about the same things that we talk about on this podcast every episode, which is power, right? Like power dynamics within this sector and misuse of it. Yeah, But I think with bigger and more radical calls than we usually make. Exactly. Not because they're wrong, but because we probably could be more radical. So I just want to share some of the stories maybe that were most impactful. Like I appreciated, you know, the whole context. The revolution will not be funded. Right at the beginning, they told the story of an organization who had received all this funding from the Ford Foundation to kind of ramp up this, this project. And then the organization came out with support for Palestine and the Ford Foundation pulled the funding. Yep. It wasn't related to the project whatsoever, but they pulled it. And so, I mean, I feel like that's the big theme is that the work we want to do, if we want to do it ethically, if we want to do it in our communities, if we want to do it in a way that truly challenges systems of power, we can't get funding from those who benefit from the same systems. Exactly. That's it right there. Thanks for joining us on the nonprofit reframe. You can. <laughs> yes, they outlined the limitations of 501c3 structure as well. So how you can't like operating within a 501c3 really restricts you on your political input and how you're using that and endorsing and, you know, can't fund that sort of thing. And at times stifles the messaging and movement because of, just like you outlined, uh, the repercussions from potential funders. And so a lot of times, you know, they gave examples of these bigger, larger social movement groups who ended up becoming a 501c3 in hopes that that was going to lead to greater funding because they were told, well, you can't access all of these different resources of funding unless you have that status. But then once they got it, they realized that they're stifled in so many different ways. They can't actually do the work that they want to do. And the funding that they're receiving is coming at such a cost that they're ended up like their focus shifts away from the actual work and becomes more about, oh my gosh, how do I answer this report? How do we got to create this budget? We got to put this logic model together so that we can fit into this pretty little box for this funder and receive this money. But now we're not even really doing the work that we set out to do. Yeah. Yeah. I I really appreciated that theme through multiple essays of like the professionalization of fundraising and how that both serves to keep activists at bay, right? Like let's keep folks busy 
with the work of getting, receiving, maintaining funding instead of actually addressing the systems of power. And that in true grassroots movements, fundraisers are activists, right? Like you're out there talking about the important work that's happening, building coalitions, getting people engaged, and through that funding comes instead of having fundraising be the center and then the the mission coming later. Right. Yep. Well, and those that they were calling out is like who you mentioned, these quote unquote left-leaning liberal foundations who are supposedly out there touting how they want to fund these types of movements, right? They want to lift up and give voice and yada, yada, <laughs> but they're not actually doing that at all. They're they're doing that as a, a guise to keep these movements small. Yeah. One thing that really shocked me was learning about how many U.S.-based foundations, like big household named foundations, have funded U.S. like imperialism, essentially, U.S. operations in other countries to maintain capitalism, to maintain neoliberalism, right? Like not actually the important work of that they would purport to have, but right. the work of the state. Right. Right. That was really gross. It was super gross. And they gave a lot of... This book gives a lot of uh, historical, yeah, like facts and that I didn't know about, and then talks about these bigger, larger movements that actually have had success, but they're all outside of the U.S. Yeah, that reminded me. So there's an entire chapter called "Black Awakening and Capitalist America." This was one where I felt like I got a nice crash course in black organizing mm -hmm. in the U.S but from the specific lens of like funder relations. So one one specific quote calling on big foundations, the Ford Foundation had been trying to quote unquote calm Cleveland since 1961 by financing various local research and action projects. But despite this joint effort, Cleveland blew up in 1966 and further serious rumblings were heard in the early spring of 1967. So it goes on to explain, right? Like there, there's the these political uprisings that are happening in Cleveland and it's resulting in demonstrations and riots. And so the Ford Foundation steps in. Well, what they do, though, is fund the activists in a way that, again, that distracts them. Like, well, if you work over here, you know, supporting kids in education, you can't then organize the protest. Right, exactly. And so the Ford Foundation, like, very distinctly, very explicitly did that. W what it goes on to say later, though, is that it did calm them. Like, I think it said summer of 68. There were no riots or protests or whatever. 69, they came back. Right. So it was interesting that not only... Was it just like unethical, but it was also very ineffective. <laughs> but while the whole time they're patting themselves on the back for funding these groups in the first place. Right. Right. Which we know is just, as they say, smoke and mirrors. Lots of smoke and mirrors. The chapter on democratizing American philanthropy was interesting because, it, again, it gave just some of that backbone historical knowledge of like foundations and payout requirements and 
how much money has been amassed there and how it helps the wealthy hoard those funds. But the we talk about this actually quite a bit more in the Patreon episode, so you should go join Patreon and you can listen to the past episodes. But the Council on Foundations in 1999 commissioned a study, and they found that from 1950 to 1998, foundations could have paid 6.5% annually. Their current requirement is 5%, so it's 1.5% over the current requirement. These foundations could have paid 6.5% annually and still would have grown their assets by 24%. Holy shit. Holy shit. I mean, we talk about like the need for greater regulation of foundations for calls to increase those payout requirements, which actually aren't a payout requirement. They're a spend requirement. Right. We need a payout requirement like hard stop anyway. But all the the obstacles that foundations put up, you're like, it's not actually founded. Your corpus still would have grown. You asshats. Yeah. And so most of these were written, what, like 20 years ago? Ish. Uh, 15 ish. Yeah. 15. It was like 2005 to 2007 ish. Yeah. But it was interesting to see some of the stats that they gave from 15, 20 years ago, knowing kind of what they are today, or seeing like, oh, nothing's actually changed. Right. Right. Well, and to your point, too, about like how liberal foundations get funded or fund organi- um, like the direct movement building versus right leaning. A couple of different essays brought up George Soros. Mm-hmm. And one of them, I'm not going to be able to put my finger on it right now, quoted him as like being in a meeting with a bunch of people and some like younger staffer brought up some issue. And George Soros, who put the money into his foundation, said, well, it's my money. I'll do what I want with it. And like that sentiment and philanthropy is so pervasive. But it's not your money. Like right. that that that's neoliberalism speaking. It's the people's money. It should have been the people's money. And we need to distribute it. Get it out the damn door. They spoke a lot about even in wanting to gain the 501c3 status to hopefully attract further funding opportunities. A lot of these movements turned organizations, again, as we know, are stifled because these foundations still are not paying out to Black-led, minority-led organizations at the same rate as they are white-led. Yeah. And how a lot of the funding, even if it's not coming from foundations, is very who you know and what networks you're around. And so for white-led organizations, just having that, for lack of a better term, like good old boy club access, the funding inequities, you know, just grow bigger and bigger. So they end up, you know, is it really gaining anything by being a 501c3? And that's what this book really did. It talked about, like, very broadly about how, well, first of all, just because it calls out the term the nonprofit industrial complex, which I had never heard before, but how it in itself is a machine and the inequities within that machine, the inequities that the machine perpetuates, Mm -hmm. which I know has you and me rethinking our entire careers. Like here, you know, I naively think that I've spent the last 20 plus years doing quote unquote good in the world 
And then you read this book and you're like, oh, fuck. Like, look what I've just contributed to. Mm-hmm. That first part of what you're talking about, like the the lack of distribution of funding into BIPOC-led organizations, they talk about that a lot in the chapter called The Filth on Philanthropy. I've got two quotes to share. Blah, blah, blah. White people and white institutions continue to control the wealth gained through the exploitation of people of color. Like, I think that's a really important foundational understanding of our philanthropic structures. And then a couple pages later, White people become more invested in protecting white wealth than advancing oppressed people of color's movements to reclaim and redistribute wealth. Right? Like, that's it right there. That's it. Yep. And when you and I talk about, like, the unlearning we have to do in fundraising, so much of it is based in that. Like, we we make white people, white wealthy people feel comfortable and feel like this is a good place they can give their money, which is way easier than saying or like having conversations about reparations and redistribution of wealth and asking about how they even amass that wealth. Right. We're complicit in the system. Exactly. My point exactly. <laughs> about questioning everything. Um, if you join our Patreon and you listen to our episodes on it, it'll be funny because you'll be able to hear like... <laughs> The, the degradation like i was going like a degradation of our souls <laughs> like over episode after episode yeah yeah there was one episode in particular <laughs> that we recorded where i left being like i don't even know if i can do this anymore <laughs> i don't mm-hmm. even know if i should do this anymore that's the um the radical part of this that like i know i need to just sit with more to figure out what is the path forward because I don't think that just saying you know white people get out of nonprofits is the solution either right like we've also caused a lot of this mess so we have a responsibility to fix it but how do we do it in a different way that how do we do it in a way that shifts power truly How do we do it in a way that does allow for reparations and the healing that philanthropy can provide? And how do we do all of that in a capitalist society? Like, I think that's the piece that really got to me. Like, there were a number of different um, authors who said, you know, as activists, you shouldn't get paid for this work. Right. And you're like, but how? How How do you do that while also – than having a job and having a family. Like, how can we effectively be activists if we just do this as something we can fit into our after hours time? Yeah. Well, and I know I was looking at the fundraising is not a dirty word chapter, which was the chapter about Project South. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And where they give some ideas around. So they get it's like a case study, right? It's talking about one organization down in the South and what they were able to do to be able to be an effective organization and choosing specifically not to be a 501c3, I believe. And a lot of it, we brought this up in our last episode for Patreon, really kind of echoes some of the CCF principles that we're seeing rise up now. Um, Like one of them was talking about how Project South doesn't hire fundraisers to fundraise. They hire organizers to fundraise. 
So really trying to center the work in everything, right? And they also spoke about another basic method used by Project South to support the community while sustaining our organization is serious collaboration with other organizations. And they, you know, we talk about that with CCF principles as well of like, how do we let go of that nonprofit hunger game scarcity mentality? How do we come together, collaborate, organize together, lift one another up? And so it was interesting to read this again. This was written 15 some years ago to see how some of those ideas have evolved now and are becoming hopefully more commonplace. Right, right. Yeah, uh, there was one whole chapter about another method of fundraising gift. Um, And it was interesting hearing about that organization and the critiques of it, which was, I mean, essentially a fundraiser training program, but in a grassroots context. Right. I forgot about that. And, And the chapter really critiqued it. Like it was exclusionary. It really was targeting white folks. It wasn't listening to the people in the way that it should have. And since that essay came out, um, CCF has come out and Gift has closed. Um, and interestingly, they like now actually recommend folks uh, look at CCF. Yeah, it, it is interesting to like think about this in today's context and where we have made some strides. Like I think CCF is the most significant thing we've done in the philanthropic nonprofit world towards the goals of most of these essayists. Yeah. I would agree. I wanted to just point out that that essay ends with, we make a commitment to increase our financial independence, not only for our own sustainability in a dangerous political climate, but also to be accountable to the communities who support us and whom we work to support. Again, going back to that question of who are we worried about being accountable to? Yeah. I can't remember now if it was that chapter or another one where they said, you know, if we're funded by the community and we're no longer needed, it's this one. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, If we're no longer needed, the community will defund us and that's okay. Right. Like we are here at their service, not the other way around. And how many times, how many times have you been in a situation where it's like, we can't do that because it's going to piss off a donor? Or it's going to piss off a sponsor, or it's going to. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. It, it's got some really nice, like, realigning values, just context and language that is helpful. If you can get past the, like, we have to burn everything down part of the book. <laughs> there was one night after reading where I was really like, I need to start figuring out how to set up a commune. What, what sort of tax structure should that be under? <laughs> Where do I need to build it? (laughs) You build it. I will come. (laughs) So then we got to the end of the book where it presented all of these solutions. (laughs) Yeah. So folks who aren't in our Patreon should know that in all of our episodes that got real dark, we were like, it's okay. We've heard that the third section is redeeming and we really need that. It provided some hope. Some. Right? Some. Um, it wasn't as redeeming as we'd hoped for, though. <laughs> yeah. I was really looking for, like, I don't know, something very clear, direct, 
this is what to do. But I knew that was also hopeful thinking. In the true style of the book, again, since these were like a compilation of essays, there were a lot of examples given. And so, you know, the talk was how can you, within a 501c3 C3 structure, support some of these larger mass movements? And they gave examples, which I thought was pretty interesting, of organizations who have come in alongside a movement and maybe help provide some aspect that they needed, but had no decision-making power within the movement itself and was not, like, did not try to take control of it. Right. Yeah. What I also thought was interesting that so many of them gave examples of movements from Central and South America. Most of those movements were in opposition to, like, American imperialism. Hundreds. So it, it's also just interesting to think about that, like the the tenets of so many of those movements, like really centered spirituality and the political as personal and right, like all of these things that I think as white folks, we struggle with even more because it's not part of our culture in the same ways. And so I think I think for you and I, like that last chapter was or that last section was hard because it doesn't speak to what white folks can do alongside movements right so we got to figure that shit out oh that's why we're here that <laughs> next why week we're here <laughs> we explain to white people <laughs> how to upend philanthropy <laughs> so we just talked about how we're taking a couple weeks off so that's what we're going to be working on <laughs> no no it's not maybe subconsciously yeah i mean it it did give me so much fodder for thinking yeah totally Yes. I mean, if you like to, like, expand your brain, I totally recommend reading it. Well, and I think it's, as I had said in our Patreon episode, it kind of lifted a veil for me that I maybe knew was there, but it was just a lot easier to ignore. And so to really dive in and look behind it and see the realities of it, um, it changed my worldview. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely makes me want to be more radical in more ways. So get ready, podcast listeners. <laughs> uh, for those of you who aren't currently on our Patreon, but because of this episode, you're like, yes, I want more. If you head on over right now, patreon.com slash nonprofit reframe, you can catch the old episodes. You can catch up. Um, so you can hear our deeper dives into this entire book. And we are considering a future book club. Um, it will likely not be the same tone and tenor as this no. one. And no. it'll be after a nice hiatus. <laughs> Recovery. So if you have any recommendations, let us know. Yeah, I think we're going to take a slightly less heavy text. I would love one where we can just tear it apart and swear through the retelling of absolutely everything we read. I, I'm i on board. So give us a really horrible text that is outdated, that is donor-centric, that is white-centric. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you're enjoying your spring. We're taking a couple weeks off, so in our next episode, if we're a little rusty, you know why. <laughs> yeah, but you all won't know we've taken time off. I know. I'm just giving a disclaimer just oh, in case. okay, okay. Just in case. 
Uh, feel free to reach out to us, nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. Catch us on Facebook and Instagram at Nonprofit Reframe. Thank you. Take care. Don't forget to become a Patreon subscriber for behind-the-scenes content starting at only $3 a month. Learn more at patreon.com slash nonprofitreframe. We would like to thank our sponsors. Brittany Wilson Consulting helps nonprofits raise even more money through fundraising coaching, training, and event production. Learn more at brittanywilson.com. That's B-R-I-T-T-N-Y Wilson.com. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based consulting firm working towards social good in all sectors through fundraising, board governance, strategy, and planning, and equity support. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com. And Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thanks for listening.